This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Every now and then, we like to do a spotlight episode on a person or a couple of people who are doing interesting things in the music world. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Merch Table was created by musicians to help other musicians sell directly to their fans. For 15 years, they've worked with a diverse range of artists to deliver an exceptional customer experience. From projects as big as top 10 billboard ranking pre-orders and early bird ticket sales, to jobs as small as helping a band sell their first t-shirt, Merch Table can manage it all. Visit merchtable.com and open a store today. On today's show, we're talking to Meredith Graves, lead singer of the band Perfect Pussy, journalist and on-camera talent at MTV News about the state of music journalism today. We also talk to our friend Simon Tam, lead singer of The Slant, and get an update on their groundbreaking Supreme Court First Amendment case. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Meredith Graves. Welcome to The Future of What. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yay. So I am super excited to talk to you because you are sort of this modern renaissance woman of the music industry, which I think is so (laughs) rad. There are plenty of women in the music industry, but there are not that many people doing all the things that you're doing. I love it that you run your own label. That's very exciting to me. Thank you. And you are in a band and you have a full-time job at MTV. Is that correct? I do all manner of ignorant stuff all the time. (laughs) I'm, you know, I love the term like Renaissance man, Renaissance woman, Renaissance person, because the Renaissance, man, that was when they would like behead each other for fun and they had plagues and stuff. So I think that's actually a pretty accurate descriptor of what I'm up against on an average day. No, I'm in writing solo music. I do a bunch of bands. I occasionally finance or design or release records under my own imprint, sometimes zines. I am a full-time television broadcast correspondent and writer for MTV News. I freelance for a bunch of places. I am just starting to like write for a bunch of places again. I am a lecturer and an educator. I occasionally teach classes at the college level and outside in different communities everywhere. I do all sorts of stuff. I like have to be doing something all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's yeah. super weird. Yeah. Being busy is amazing. Now, where are you from? You said East Cupcake. Where Where are you from? Where do you hail from? East Cupcake. It's right to the east of West Jesus, north of Bumble. <laughs> I'm from upstate New York. I'm from a town that's about an hour and a half north of Syracuse called Watertown. I went to school about an hour and a half north of there. I lived in Potsdam, New York for a long time. So basically, if I can sit and like put Justin Trudeau at risk, that's like part of the country where I'm from, like very far upstate New York. Okay. I have a very important question. Why do you not say Syracuse? Oh, because nobody... Okay. So... <laughs> There's a good reason. <laughs> Okay, why do I not say Syracuse is because my father is a broadcast journalist. Aha, there you go. And I was I was born in Syracuse. And when I was a kid, until we moved up to Watertown when I was 11, 
my dad was a beat reporter and he was on TV every night. So raised by broadcast journalist father and an actress mother, I have always had the kind of diction that gets you bullied. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. Which like, check me out at 29 on TV and shit, but like, I don't say, I don't say Syracuse. Everyone, everyone from upstate New York sounds like the mom from Bobby's world. But here in New York City, like yesterday, you know, I'm at a food truck getting a cup of coffee and the guy looks at me, you know, a few times a week. You have an accent. Where are you from? Oh, my God. I'm like, oh, God, to some people, I sound really, really, really Canadian. Oh, interesting. Really Canadian. Really Canadian. I'm from like 10 minutes from Canada. So you're really sort of an honorary Canadian, actually, at this point. Totally, totally honorary (laughs) Canadian. Totally. Oh I consider myself an honorary comedian, I think. So is, does that sort of, does your dad's career sort of inform, has that sort of informed your own interest in journalism? That's a fascinating way to phrase that question, because I, I think my dad's career writ large sort of influenced me as, as a person. My father was also from my birth onward, I mean, before I was born too, but like overall, a really heavy music enthusiast. He loves to put me in my place if he thinks I'm getting a little beheaded by reminding me that he was listening to Husker Du when he was painting my nursery with my pregnant mom. Like, <laughs> he was punk. And right. he loved jazz. And so my father's career has inspired me insofar as my father did not go to college. He's a career journalist. He stuck to the thing that he liked to do, even when it wasn't necessarily popular or fiscally responsible. But he is a career writer. He's always kept it cooking in a few rooms. He's writing poems and he writes blogs and he writes about music and he knows more about music than I ever will. I think really my father informed my sense of how being a polymath isn't something ascribed to you by like birthright. You can work towards it. Mm. My father shifted my mind at a very young age towards the pleasure of being interdisciplinary. Mm. And that's something stuck with me my whole life. Interesting. That's very, that's very cool. So I kind of want to grill you about, I mean, I kind of want to get your father on the phone and grill him, but I'm just interested from both your perspectives about what is going on right now in America, because it's like journalism is now something that people don't practice. Instead, they practice, I don't know what, spin? Right, right. You know, so... Aggregation. Aggregation, yeah. Uh, it's It seems very odd. Maybe MTV News is the only, you know, one of the only places left where people are going to get real news. Yeah, I'm really lucky to work where I work because there's a couple different kinds of aggregation, I think. And of course, you know, when I say this stuff, I say this as someone who has just spent a year working for MTV News and a year before that freelancing for a whole bunch of pretty mainstream publications. And beyond that, I have zero formal experience in this field. So I'm really speaking as like a devoted, like, forward-facing neophyte, but coming up with journalism, I think. Aggregation is interesting because in one sense, there's the aggregation of information and the recycling of information where Billboard will quote Rolling Stone who are quoting the fader. Right. And you'll get some of that. You'll get a fair amount of that. Or you'll get entire articles that are written by algorithms aggregated from supplementary materials and press junket offshoot. But then there's the aggregation, the kind that we perform in like a socially engineered sense here at MTV, where if you look at our political writing department, we have Jamil Smith, we have Anna Marie Cox, we have Jane Costin, we have Carvel Wallace, some of the greatest contemporary political thinkers, along with performance poets, along with high school and college age student coordinators. We've really gone around and aggregated socially the 
finest, most elevated, like really dialectically sound voices that we can find. And what it's created is, well, I was live, I was on live TV on election night in the middle of Times Square. And when we realized what was going on, you know, there were seven or eight of us correspondents that were placed in various positions around the studio. And I just remember looking at the lineup and staying on air until, you know, one in the morning or so just for kids who were up watching the results and looking around and being like, this crew rolls deep. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very, very proud to work in a place that largely, if not exclusively because of our editorial direction and the quality of the people that I work with, like definitely maintains some semblance of like proving radical levels of integrity. But what's journalism doing right now? It's just a disaster. It's like, it's very, very embarrassing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's, it's mortifying. It's like, it's super bad. It's super, super embarrassing that people are, it's like, it's like uh, all the liberals who woke up the morning after the election and went, oh, things are going to get really bad now. Whereas for most people were like, been bad. Yeah. <laughs> and like journalism is the same thing. It's like, all of a sudden we have to be looking out for what outlets are fake news. It's like, not if you can read it, it's fake news, baby. And it's right. been fake news for like a super long time. Because if you think the mainstream media is awful about being in collusion with advertisers and the interests of the communities that are low-key supported by industries like the oil industry, the private prison industrial complex, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, media and government are hand-in-hand hand with those things. Like there's my rallying cry as long as I've been lucky enough to travel around in college classes has been an end to the fallacy of objective journalism mm-hmm. for this reason. And it's just because you're you're buying the size of the headline, basically. I feel like at most of these places, it's just, it's very gross and very, very difficult for me to see people who are now feeling personally offended that they don't feel like they're getting the truth from what CNN Mm. or NBC, Mm. like that's the entry level of welcoming dissent into your life. And well, I'm, I'm glad that people are, reaching conclusions and they're they're starting to get it that like the best president is no president all news is fake news sort of like universal anarchist truth i guess like i'm glad that people are getting that period mm-hmm. no matter when or how but at the same time it is borderline insufferable to <laughs> hit the news running every day and to just go like oh my god it's the end of the world and this is what we're doing right. so i like getting up and coming to my office every day but Journalism writ large, it's it's scary. It's scary to think that with the nation's fear, the nation, like the establishment's fear of journalism right now, when we're not even really given the information to report on or allowed to do anything cool, it's amazing to think that we could end up in some journalist camp for doing nothing good. <laughs> if yes. that makes sense. It's yes. like, we're going to be gulagged by the state eventually for disseminating media or doing something that upsets the country president. And we won't even do anything meaningfully cool. Right. It will just be a, a death slog. And like, that's what we're looking at in terms of the journalist machine right now, I think. Wow. Yeah, that's really so, depressing. I'm super disaffected, but I did get to review the new Harry Styles album. Woo! So. All right. Woo. And, you know, the, a lot of fun. the latest article I saw about him is, is Harry Styles, you know, bisexual or not? <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's the question on like, everyone's no. lips. Yeah. No, he's been like, I'm not <laughs> going to define my sexuality. I'm, and then follow that up by being like, well, also don't ask me if I'm bisexual because I'm not going to define my sexuality. I'm not bisexual. Right. And it's like, let Harry live. 
The kids that follow MTV News are very passionate about Harry. So I feel it was almost like my moral obligation to stay as far away from Harry Styles as possible. So I too could maintain that ignorant tenderness. Right. Yeah. But now I've listened to his record and it's something. Yeah. You know, true journalism. True journalism. Seriously. Objective. Mm-hmm. Super objective. <laughs> well, let's, let's, turn, <laughs> let's turn to a subject dear to my heart, which is the name of your band. Sure. Yeah, Perfect Pussy. And, you know, I run a record label called Kill Rockstars, mm-hmm. which is also one of those names that people don't get and have trouble with <laughs> a lot of the time. So, you know, what, what, what was the impetus to name your band that particular name? At the time, you know, when the band first started, when we were done with the whole, like, we made this nameless fake band for a movie thing, it was kind of like... The entire goal of the project as it existed, at least in my head, I mean, maybe this wasn't a collective decision at the time, but like to me, I had been out of hardcore in Syracuse for a while after outing my abuser, who it was no secret to anyone. We lived together. I helped him run his record label. We were in a venue together. We were in a band together and he was prohibitively awful to me and a lot of other people, but this was the way the scene works. So he was offended and I went on my merry way and thought, I will never be in a band again. And so during that time, one of his big qualms with me was that I was the PC fun police and his idiot friends would like run around saying the worst words they could think of all the time just to get under my skin. And one time just casually deigned to say something at one of our shows that was like, you know, don't be upfront feigning that you like this band I'm on the same message boards as you guys you're using slurs and that the calling each other pussies was definitely one of those things that at the time I was talking about because it was a simpler time then and so when we started this band I really did simply mean it as more of an action than a band like it, it just needed to exist as a violent affront to a scene that was so not unfriendly to me on a personal level, but unfriendly to anyone who dissented to the way things were done. And it was this bizarre, like pseudo artsy youth attack lychee kind of thing going on at the time mm-hmm. where like everything sounded like they had picked it up out of a dumpster in Tampa and brought it home with them. <laughs> and it was absolutely nothing original. It was fascinating, but not original. It was violent, which I love, but it was not original. And so we were like, okay, we're going to do something super weird and I will name it something that is as grating and difficult to talk about or difficult to say or as difficult to do. I want to make life as difficult for the people who are going to have to write this man's name on flyers and post them around town as they have made my life just existing. Like it was just a small needle. Wow. I was also at the time thinking about capitalism, of course, and like pornography, which of course I'm not like, not at all like anti-porn or anti-sex work or anything. But what I am against is that word being used as an insult. It's an insult that men levy against each other quite frequently. It's used to denote like a certain weakness or indesirability. And then that phrase actually, perfect pussy, is like a very, very, very common descriptor in porn. Yeah. And what it usually refers to, as I found, is girls that look underage. And so in hardcore, of course, that's a huge problem because young, impressionable girls who aren't burnt out by the scene yet tend to come in and get scooped up by sketchy older dudes, especially in a scene that's dense with sketchy older dudes. Right. Any femme person, any non-cis dude person, we're all going to have had the experience at some point of being some dude's coat rack. So like Perfect Pussy was really about like, you come to my house where I have shows, you call each other the F slur and you call each other pussies and then you go home and you look for pussy and pussy is something you prize 
when you're not trying to out masculine the people that you're in awful bands with. Right. And it, it all just worked for me to make it this term. I really, I never, ever, ever, ever wanted it to refer to any specific thing. It was like a bucket sign to me. It could be filled with anything. It could be filled with the virulent disgust I felt at thinking about these horrible, horrible men, like horrible men who said horrible things about women, like actively consuming the bodies of women in private. Or it could be about feeling proud to be a wimp, feeling proud to be a pussy, which I am. I cry at the drop of a hat. Like, <laughs> and, and, there's, and therein lies the rub. There's your proof of concept. Before I knew it, I was being flown across the world to play shows in New Zealand, and these dumb shit yokels were left to eat our dust, and it felt kind of good. So, yeah, it was, it was weaponized. Yeah. It was weaponized. In the trunk. I'm pleased to hear that because I think it really worked. And I'm a big proponent of naming bands and naming things, things that are very controversial. Mm-hmm. I always I always say that, you know, I didn't name Kill Rock Stars, but I absolutely stand behind it. I stand behind what yeah. what that stands for. And I would say that really the only unforeseen side effect of having that band name after 26 years is that now when I have to sign my kid up for things at school, I have to write that my email address is Portia at killrockstars.com. And then I get, you know, having to deal with administrators looking at me funny because, you know, that's not exactly where we, you know, that wasn't the demographic that we thought we were going to be interacting with 26 years later. That's okay. I mean, it is okay. KRS is for the children though. ARS is for the children. <laughs> it's a, and it's okay to challenge those people, but it is funny. You know, it is funny to suddenly be like, oh, shit, I'm a suburban mom. <laughs> These people are like not prepared. Oh, yeah. The number of times that I've been in like an airport and like we, we went to Australia and we did this big festival, right? And like when you're in Australia and you're on tour, you fly between cities. And so every two or three days you're on a plane. And if you're going on the morning flight, you're with the bands at the first half. And if you're on the afternoon flight, you're with all the other bands that play at night. And so there would be so many bands in the airport and this festival was happening in every city in Australia. So everywhere you go, there's just bands everywhere, instruments everywhere. The airport is a nightmare. All these well-meaning little old ladies at the airport would be like, and what's the name of your band? Oh, my God. And I would just have to be like, oh, we're from the United States. You've never heard of us. Do you play any instruments? And just like... (laughs) Divert, divert, divert. Right. Awesome. There's no point in, in challenging their paradigm, the old ladies in Australia. Just leave them alone. Yeah. And like, you know what? If, if one of the guys in the band, you know, we would, one of us, sometimes it would be me. We would go back when I still drank. So we would show up to the airport, still drunk. It's a perfect pussy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's, it's also wonderful. It's wonderful now because, you know, a couple of years after the record comes out, I'm going around and I'm lecturing at universities and stuff. And I have to be regarded as like, you know, an investigative journalist from TV News and bylines in the New York Times and The Guardian and singer of a grind adjacent band called Perfect Pussy. <laughs> they have to say that. Right. So it's yeah. Cool, cool. Exploding narrative time. It's going to haunt me forever. <laughs> totally.
That was Curs in the Weeds by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. After our show, take a minute to check out another Jabberjaw podcast, like Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast that takes listeners on a journey through the world of dating apps. Every Monday, follow Mike, Brad, and a huge cast of borderline hopeless daters as they deal with the highs and lows of looking for love. Listeners have called Too Old to Date hilarious, cringeworthy, and horrifyingly relatable. So head to TooOldToDate.com or search for Too Old to Date on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Meredith Graves. Well, I have one more question. It's really just because of timing, but what is your take on this whole power bottom thing? Mm. Do you have a take yet or are you still thinking about it? Oh, I've, I've always got a take. And and the <laughs> thing about my, the thing, I've, I've always got, everyone's always got a f- take. It's 2017. Yeah. We're in the take economy. <laughs> Here is my take on the power bottom thing. And this is, I will share this part of it because this is not a take that I have seen anyone else express for the exact reason. Like I, I get so meta. This is why I don't go to parties. The take that I wish to express on the power bottom issue is the one of how disappointed I am to see fans, to see friends, to see other journalists using the internet to insinuate that everyone must share their take Mm. on power bottom. There are a lot of ways to be a survivor of sexual violence. And for people who may or may not be survivors themselves to tweet things like, it's funny how quiet I've seen some people be. Well, it doesn't always be great for every person to enter. When something happens, when a person in a position of power is accused of abusing that power, right? whether it's emotional abuse or sexual violence or any of the myriad of ways that we as human beings can hurt each other in like mutual and one-sided ways, whenever that happens. So we've got, you know, person X accused of sexual assault. The conversation around it turns into a bunch of adjacent people talking about their past experiences and their specific instances of assault and correlating it back, like transcending time and space to talk about their survivor status in relation to a fundamentally unrelated event. Mm -hmm. And when that happens in social media and in the Twitter sphere, and it ups the sort of SEO of it all, what it what ends up looking like is that the accused is like a career criminal because of the multitude of people who are contributing unrelated experiences to a conversation that's fundamentally about the positioning of the survivors of the person who we're talking about right now, if that makes sense. It does. So like everyone should be allowed to enact this survivorship in the way that feels best to them. And for some of us, and I say us because I absolutely include myself in this demographic, like I have written extensively about my past as a survivor of domestic violence and as a survivor of sexual assault and sexual abuse. I've written for Rookie about it. Like I've, I've done this in the past before. I don't necessarily feel the need to do it right now. Other people may have the reverse experience. Maybe this will inspire them to come out with their own take on their own experience of sexual assault. No one, no one is obligated to share their story. No one is obligated to share their opinion. No one is obligated to comment. And there's this dialogue around like who's staying quiet. Well, some of those people who are staying quiet 
survivors of sexual assault, you know, and I feel like people, honestly, it's embarrassing that we have to remind people of that, that healing and that survivor status looks so different for so many of us, regardless of the person involved, regardless of the victims involved, regardless of the conversation going on around it. It is never anyone's right to demand a take from other people because you don't know what their healing looks like. And that is quite literally like anything I may feel about the specifics of the power bottom situation is obfuscated and clouded beyond relief by how disappointed I am in the way I see people behaving. That's very interesting. If we could be this proactive, taking that, like, please let this level of outrage exist the next time it's one of the 8 million rando cis straight white dudes in music who are definitely documented rapists. Yes. Like, we... Like this this level of outrage for politicians, this level yes. of outrage is like I I don't want any abuse to continue of any person, of course. Right. I just I would love to see like I, I'm so tired of seeing the language of policing replicated in intimate small communities. I'm so tired of of the language of litigation and legality and police. It's police language. It's the intrusion of police language into the everyday lives of fundamentally counterculture people, marginalized people who exist on the fringes of society, whether we want to or not, because we're, because we're queer or marginalized in any one of a number of other ways. Right. We've internalized and interpreted the language of police to the point where it just comes out so naturally. We all sound like cops. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, it's like the purity police. It's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of white queers running around talking about police until like someone does something bad. And then it's talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's legal language being used by non-experts to correlate past instances of their abuse with current instances of abuse. Maybe the person who made the allegations against the members of this band doesn't want to be the focus of this conversation. Like, right. Right. I guess what I'm trying to say is all I ever seem to worry about are the survivors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All I worry about are the survivors. And I don't want their shit being dragged up any more than they're prepared to have happen. And I don't want them to feel like like because of the way it's blown up, maybe there will be actual police involved. And for some people, there are immigration issues, there are family issues. Like we have done such a fantastic job of blowing this up that we may have gotten actual police involved, which puts real people at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I don't know. Everyone else, everyone else is having the very, very important conversation about the actual reality of sexual assault in the punk scene. That's covered. I find myself thinking about other stuff. Yeah. That's where I'm at. I think, you know, and this is kind of where my head goes every time something like this happens. And just my my wish for a world and for a scene where we are better equipped to take care of each other. Right. And not use the tyranny of social media to further victimize people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, free software accessible to everybody who can get on the Internet to share their experiences and their opinions. That's miraculous. Sometimes we even can use this free software to like, monetize things. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But it's created a take economy Mm. that tells people that it's the right time to jump in. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not always the right time to jump in for everybody. Right. Yeah. That's a that's a good unique perspective. I have not heard that one yet. You may you may by jumping in be obfuscating the needs of a survivor. And Mm -hmm. that's something I ask people to consider. Right. Yeah. Like by jumping in and trumpeting your story, you are burying a survivor's voice very possibly, which is already an issue when a person is a victim of assault. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do anymore. I am old (laughs) and I'm just going to keep showing up 
and trying to contribute and keep people safe to the best of my ability. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Bad. But it's, it's thank God you're, you know, you're in a position of visibility and you have a, an opinion and you have something to say. I mean, I, I feel like that's, for me, that's the power of music always is, you know, oh, totally. bringing, bringing people who have something to say, you know, to a lot of people's ears. I mean, that's what we've been trying to do for 26 years is put out records by people who have something to say so that more people can hear them. You've succeeded <laughs> and are the best. Oh, and thanks. the coolest. That's so nice. I've been a KRS fan since I was 13 years old Aww. and I'm 29. I'm about to turn 30. Wow. So, Well, congratulations for making it that far. <laughs> from one human to another human, KRS rules and yes. always will. And I'm so psyched. Hey, well, I'm so psyched we got to talk. Hey. Meredith Graves, I appreciate you very much. And thank you for being with us on The Future of What? I appreciate you too. KRS forever.
was Body by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it? Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Simon Tam. Simon, welcome back to The Future of What? Well, thank you for having me again. It's so nice to, to have you here. So, so many things have been going on in your life lately, but today we're going to try to narrow it down. Sure. And yeah. focus mainly on your Supreme Court case. Sounds good. So why don't you just do a little precie, just tell us how you came to be involved in this case in the first place, and then we can talk about your actual experience. Sure. So about eight years ago, a friend of mine who's an attorney in town recommended that I register our band's trademark. And he said it's uh, pretty inexpensive, and he says in like six months the whole thing will be over. Of course, things turned out a little bit differently <laughs> because the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said that the name of my band, Slants, is disparaging or racist towards persons of Asian descent. So we kind of started off appealing, saying, hey, we're not actually offensive. We're, the name's actually empowering and the community supports this. And we fought like that for many years. But eventually it made its way to the federal circuit based on the constitutional issue of them violating our First Amendment rights. We won there a year and a half ago, and the government decided to defy federal court orders and then eventually appealed to the Supreme Court, which is why we ended up there about two months ago or a month ago. So let's get this straight. You guys are all Asian or Asian-American in your band. That's correct. Right. So you're, you're using the name The Slants entirely with a full cognition of the implications of that word. Yeah. I mean, for us, we wanted to reappropriate it. I mean, it was just taking on a stigmatizing label, a false stereotype, actually, and changing it and making it something that was about power and identity. I mean, bands have been doing this for, for many, many years. It's not uncommon or unknown. But yeah, they, they had a big problem with that. In fact, the government said we were too Asian. They, they said, if, <laughs> if, if we weren't Asian, this wouldn't be an issue. Like if it was a non-Asian band doing it, it wouldn't be a problem because slant is not an inherent racial slur. It means many different things. But they said in the context of an Asian band using it, people would automatically assume the racial slur instead of any other possible definition. So if I were, I don't know, a white supremacist band or all white guys and using the name, they would not have a problem with it. In fact, I'm the only person in all of U.S. history to be denied a trademark registration for slant there have actually been hundreds and hundreds of them, but I'm the only one to be denied on the grounds that it could possibly be racist towards Asians. Wow. This is this is confusing me. <laughs> is... <laughs> well, it, what's even more confusing is that so you have one department of the government who says, hey, you guys are really racist towards Asian people. And you have many other parts of the government who say, hey, what you're doing is really important. So they actually ask us to do anti-racism training. So a month and a half before we went to the Supreme Court, we got reached out to by the White House to collaborate on a project with Barack and Michelle Obama on anti-Asian oppression. And we released an album with them. And what's funny is the song that they chose was a song that we wrote as an open letter to the trademark office. <laughs> so 
<laughs> yeah, it's all kinds of all kinds of fun. Wow, wow, that's truly insane. So now, at what point did you have to start paying money, or did you not? Like, did you have to get a lawyer at some point to 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 help you in this fight? That they, I mean, they were denying you use of the name, the yeah. trademark office, and then you appealed to the trademark office. Yeah. So, and that was through the help of an attorney. So okay. I've been paying for like court fees and legal fees for almost a decade now. Wow. The the attorneys who've been working on my case for the last six years have been doing it pro bono, but I'm still responsible for court fees. And every time you want to talk to the court or the trademark office, they, they throw another fee at you. So an appeal like this, even though everyone's been working pro bono, has cost like tens of thousands of dollars. And of course, almost a decade of my life that I'll never get back. Wow. So this is why nobody has ever appealed this far before. I'm the only person to take it this far, mostly because I'm really, really stubborn. <laughs> but yeah, most most other organizations give up. Most businesses close up shop. The only other organization that's come close is this uh, San Francisco LGBTQ rights group called Dykes on Bikes. But even their rights have been infringed on, and they're kind of like weighing in and hoping that we win so that they could finally get things settled for their own nonprofit. So like you are alluding to right now, basically what has happened in, over the last decade as you've appealed this is that a strong contingent of the legal community has grown up very excited about your case because they feel like it's a very important free speech, First Amendment case. Correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. And not only free speech advocates, but also trademark attorneys who felt that the law is really confusing. And more importantly, as we've been fighting, we found out that the government's using this law to disproportionately target communities of color and members of the LGBTQ community. So in other words, you're too gay to use this or you're too black or too Asian to use a particular trademark. We found that almost any racial slur that you can think of for Asian Americans, and I, I mean – because the reality is slant on the racism Richter scale is pretty low. Right. There's many other colorful words, but anything you could possibly think of is a registered trademark. And they're almost entirely held by non-Asian people. Wow. And so, but, but when Asians use them in like this kind of reappropriated manner, they're swiftly denied. Uh, same thing for slurs against the gay community and feminist groups and anti-racism groups. We get targeted for our work. This is really fascinating. It's also really fascinating to see that this was all happening under the Obama administration, which people, you know, think of him as a, well, a Democrat and a somewhat liberal it's president. True, but it's also like more people were deported under his presidency than any other president as well. So. Yet. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> to date. That's right. Someone might be breaking that record very soon. Like in the next week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that could happen. So you finally got your day in the sun. You actually went to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I saw tons of media coverage of it. It looked truly exciting. It was it was exciting, and it felt like a little bit of a circus, and it was totally overwhelming. Yeah, so how did that go? In the courtroom itself. Yeah, in the courtroom. It, it didn't even feel like reality, On honestly. I mean, almost a decade of my life was hinging on about 50 minutes of talking. And both attorneys on both sides, mine included, just had a really tough time because you have Supreme Court justices just constantly grilling and interrupting and kind of taking the conversation wherever they wanted and using the most extreme examples possible to kind of tease out these legal theories. But there was this moment just a little bit in as they were 
I guess, questioning the Department of Justice attorney who's representing the trademark office. And and as they're kind of grilling him on, on their position, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, notorious RBG, gave us this little shout out. She's like, hey, does it not matter that everybody knows that the slants is taking the sting out of the word? And I was like, yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> like, she knows our work. That's awesome. Aww. And the only thing the government attorney could say, well, like, well, we found some articles on the internet that said it might be problematic. I'm like, you're talking about Wikipedia. You're talking about Urban Dictionary. You're not talking about the actual Asian community here. Wow. But, of course, I wasn't allowed to, like, stand up and defend myself. I had to just kind of watch it unfold. So the whole thing flew by very, very quickly, and it was it was really fascinating. As as someone who's actually a big fan of a lot of the work of certain justices, it was it was really moving to see them like talking about our case and, and our work. Of course, they're talking about much bigger themes and how it applies to the country, but just to see them talk about our band, it was just kind of surreal. Yeah. Did you get to give any testimony? No, no, no. I I wasn't even allowed to sit near the attorneys. Oh, like. They they have the attorneys up front right before the justices. Then behind them are several rows of attorneys who pay to be in the special like club, essentially. And then there's the common people. <laughs> I was in the common people section. Wow. So but it was it was really exciting. And and when we were when we were done, we walked out of the courtroom, out of the Supreme Court, and the entire courtyard was filled with people. Like people had been lining up since midnight the night before to try and get in. And like blocks and blocks around the Supreme Court, and they were just all there in the courtyard. And all of a sudden, like we're walking down the steps, and like, like thousands of people are like screaming at us and yelling, trying to get pictures and doing things. And it was like my band members were like starting getting lost in the shuffle, and, yeah. and I was trying to trying to wrangle them all. But it was wild, and at the same time, also really exciting because I, I ran into these kids who flew from like California to meet us, people from Texas, people from Georgia, people who wanted to get into anti-racism work because of the stuff we were doing. And meanwhile, like reporters are like yelling at me, like Nina Totenberg's like grabbing my arms, like I got a deadline to meet Simon. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. You didn't fly across the country for this. Yeah. But but it was great. And, and more importantly, we got to see Issues of race and racial identity talked about in the news. And for a few short hours during the week of the inauguration, Trump wasn't on the top of the news headlines. It was our band. Like we dominated, we we dominated Trump for, for a few hours. Wow. So that was that was probably the my lifelong achievement for, <laughs> for a little bit. We were sick. We were sick at the top. So far from where we started.
that was We Were Sick by The Thermals. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Simon Tam. Okay, so now how long do they say it takes for the Supreme Court to come back with a verdict on this? That'll be about June. Okay. So in the meantime, we were just we released an EP the, the week that we went to the Supreme Court. So we're just kind of touring in support of that. We affectionately named it the band who must not be named. Little little nod to the trademark office and the government. And so now we get to focus on our art. So like I don't really have to do anything except to kind of wait and I try and talk to people about our story and our case and hopefully the Supreme Court and their assistants and everyone who's working on that staff will kind of pay attention to those stories, pick up on it, and hopefully that'll help sway the decision. So what happens if they rule in your favor? What will that mean? Uh, well, it depends if they rule narrowly or broadly. If they rule broadly that and say, hey, this law is unconstitutional, that means trademarks that are considered scandalous, immoral, and disparaging can no longer be denied on those grounds. So possibly offensive stuff could be registered trademarks, which doesn't make a big change from what's happening already. But what that means is marginalized communities no longer have to have these false accusations thrown at them so they don't have to kind of shut down or give up their work. If they rule narrowly and say, hey, the law is constitutional, but the trademark office had it wrong when it came to determining if slants was you know, disparaging or not, then we would get the trademark registration but the law would still stand and other people would still have like a very, very long appeal process to try and fight those kinds of accusations. This is fascinating in light of some stuff that's come out in news recently. I'm thinking about that Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever his last name is. Yes. (laughs) You know, who apparently was able to say absolutely anything, but when it came to pedophilia, that pushed it too far and the conservatives (laughs) couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, Yeah. And it's just an interesting, I mean, I think free speech is a really interesting sort of conundrum in this country anyway. It's, it, it is, and it's, it's problematic because everyone says they like free speech until they hear something they disagree with or don't like. Then all of a sudden, they want to shut the conversation down. But I think, it's, I think it's a critical right to kind of support and protect in this country because the reality is that the people who are most affected by these kinds of laws tend to be marginalized communities, people who don't generally have a voice in our country. So members of the LGBTQ groups or communities of color and people who are underprivileged, people who don't have like tons of money to, to kind of push their messages out. Yeah. I'm just interested because I feel like the, the news cycle has been dominated lately with this sort of amorphous notion that white men haven't been properly listened to. <laughs> yes, that you know, like they're feeling their little feelers are hurt because they haven't been able to say all the nasty racial and sexist things that they wanted to say, which is why they voted for Trump. Apparently, like that's Th- that's the the sentiment. Yeah, yet they're the ones calling us snowflakes. <laughs> like, well, okay, but I mean, I, I think this is an interesting point because I feel like if free speech is truly going to be protected in this country, and we really are going to be able to say all the terrible things that we think. That might be a good thing because it looks like or the way it's been done up until now has not actually been particularly productive. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's kind of like what the ACLU says, that the the cure for hate speech isn't censorship. It's more speech. More speech, yes. It's better speech and yeah. more nuanced speech. And if you exactly. can get those different perspectives out there, the best ones will eventually win. But if you try and suppress them all, it's kind of like 
if you're on a diet and you know you can't have cookies, but every time you walk by them, you know you want it and you think about it more. That's what happens when you suppress bad opinions. And apparently, that's what happens with the entire population of people who support Trump. They felt like they were being suppressed and now they're kind of on this uptick and, and trying to demand all this attention. Right. And so I, I do agree with that. I think that that's where we're at. I'd rather have more opinions out there and the ability to have debate rather than just, you know, because it's clearly not working. And it's also clearly, you know, your case is really important because it's showing that marginalized people have been disproportionately silenced. Yeah. I mean, in, we, in our legal system. It, and it's it's kind of ironic that in the name of protecting against racism, they're denying rights based on race. And the government's like, that's totally legit. Right. Like, because their purpose, they believe, is, is greater than, than what we're trying to do. But, you know, I, I'm kind of like, you kind of have a bad history when it comes to race and racism in this country. The people in power have generally gotten it wrong. And so they can't just kind of be paternalistic in, in assuming that they, they're going to do what's right in terms of protecting our communities. You need to empower those communities to make those decisions for ourselves. Exactly. So you've sort of one of the sort of unforeseen side effects of this whole schlamazel is that you've become this rock star in the legal community. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now you are playing legal funds. I mean, legal, you know, like groups, law schools, law yeah, schools conferences. and conferences. And yeah, and, and it's kind of funny because I'll, I'll book a show at like a law school or something and they're like, and then they'll think it's like, fun to, I mean because they they like spirited debates and they're like okay we're gonna put you on this debate with this law professor I'm like that's like a loaded deck that's not really fair because <laughs> like you have someone who spent their entire career in life studying law and then you have me who just went through it I'm like that's why don't you get somebody else who understands our position and who has the same level of credibility and experience like I could sit on a panel and talk about what the actual effects are but I don't know like theoretical law and, and that sort of thing so it's 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 been interesting putting together these events because they're like they're assuming that I am my own attorney at, wow. in those in instances. Yeah. And like in some cases, yeah, like I'm I'm fine. I can I can talk about our case in terms of the impact on vulnerable communities, but I don't want to like dive into like deep legal theory in the weeds or anything like that. And and some of them are like, you should go to law school. You should be an attorney. And I'm like. <laughs> I just want to make music. Like <laughs> I named my band The Slants and somehow I ended up at the Supreme Court and <laughs> here I am now. But it doesn't mean you want to go to law school. It doesn't mean I want to go to law school. I want to keep people who have been to law school accountable and say, hey, the stuff that you do matters. The stuff that you do impacts people like me. But you have, people have to think about it in a much bigger picture because there's folks, even those who support the trademark office, like I can, un I can understand that because they're, they're always telling me like, well, you can always appeal. But the problem is they don't understand what appealing means, what kind of burden it places on people. And I'm like, I just spent almost a decade in court and I didn't even commit a crime. Imagine folks who have been falsely accused of a crime, what they have to go through and what kind of burdens you place on them. It's, so it brings up all kinds of wild questions. But hopefully we make law school a little bit more fun when they attend those events at the, for, for us performing and, and speaking about these issues. And, and hopefully we can bring up these issues in a new, interesting perspective for them too. Well, I wish you the best. I'm really excited to hear the verdict. Can't wait. I hope it comes down broadly our way. <laughs> Thank you. I, me too. <laughs> yeah. Simon Tam is a member of the Slants. Simon, thanks so much for joining us today on The Future of What? Thanks so much for having me. 
And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers, Cow with the Get Down, Stay Down, The Thermals, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.